This talk is called The Paradox of Desire. And I will be covering a little bit of this, or much of the same stuff that Philip spoke of last night, but with a little bit of a different spin. And as uh, we give talks, we always hope that at least one or two things land, and sometimes coming at the same subject from two different sides might be helpful to um, lodge or dislodge something that might need to be lodged or dislodged. So it's very easy to hear the second noble truth as being that desire causes suffering. And this can lead to many problems. It tends to be part of the popular understanding of Buddhism and make it seem like a religion where it's kind of not okay to be a regular person. Um, It can lead our practice to become a form of craving for extinction that uh, Philip explained last night. And he was very clear last night about uh, that it's grasping and thirst and grasping onto desire that is the problem. But I want to come at this again from a different angle just so that um, we don't cut the wholesome nerve of wholesome desire. I have a friend who just uh, found out that he had a large tumor in his throat. And when the surgeons went at it, they had to be very careful to not cut some of the connections that helped him move his arm to take away what was not good and to leave what was important. So I want to um, emphasize that in the Buddhist tradition, there is wholesome desire, there is joy, there is release, and these things are to be cultivated, they're to be recognized and understood, that this is a path that is intended to lead to happiness. When the Buddha said, I talk about suffering and the end of suffering, the end of suffering is happiness, um, And it's a happiness kind of beyond ordinary happiness that he talked about. But it's also regular and ordinary happiness. Things that lead to more suffering um, and to more difficulty and to more pain are to be abandoned. And there is an effort to abandon those things. And things that lead to happiness and peace and wholesomeness are to be cultivated. And there's an effort to cultivate those things. And there's also a need for some amount of discrimination in understanding what are the things that lead to happiness and what are the things that lead to suffering because we're all somewhat confused about which is which. (coughs) The Zen teacher Yvonne Rand came to the teacher training that Hugh and I are engaged in right now and she left us with this uh, powerful statement of her years and years of practice where she said she's never seen wisdom arise in the absence of ease. She's never seen wisdom arise in the absence of ease. And this is why the fourth metaphrase uh, wishes that all beings shall have some ease or some sense of deepest well-being in our lives, because being able to relax and open to experience does require a certain level of some kind of support. It's also true that um, learning how to treat ourselves well is the foundation of the path. And when someone first said this to me, it sounded a little outrageous that treating yourself well is something that's good and okay and to be cultivated. This entire practice can be seen as a practice of love for ourselves and for others. Now, of course, it's not like foolish and silly love. It's not... Uh, just a path of self-indulgence. We know that. It's also not a path of suppression. This is the middle way uh, that we're attempting to cultivate here. And the middle way is the way that leads right through the experience that we're having. It's staying in the middle. Um, As many of the Thai uh, teachers say, it's letting the mind kind of be normal. And when it wanders off to the left and right, getting involved in issues here and there, that you encourage it to come back and just go straight into the experience and be direct. As uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj said, that um, the river of life th- flows through between the banks of pleasure and pain. It means being in this flow and not getting stuck on either bank, uh, letting our experience be that river and opening to the way that life is, um, letting ourselves flow.
the Buddha's enlightenment really only came after he cut himself some slack. Um, many of you know this story, but uh, for six years, he was kind of torturing his flesh and crushing his mind and uh, doing extremely ascetic practices, eating one grain of rice a day. Um, he was making a gigantic effort uh, toward understanding, and it really wasn't working. There are statues of him showing all the ribs and bones, and they said his vertebra, you know, his spine showed through his stomach and stuff like that. And his, there's descriptions of how his eyes were popping out and his nerves were popping out. Um, and he started to think, like, you know, this really isn't working. This is horrible. Um, I'm not really learning that much from this. And um, he met up with a young woman who gave him some rice pudding. And <laughs> he ate that and <laughs> received, I think, also the kindness and care and contact from someone else. Um, and his mind was uplifted. He felt some strength in his body. And um, he decided that feeling that suddenly there was going to be an opening for himself to understand, I think maybe on a train of association with this comfort and this uh, moment of happiness and release from his struggles that he felt. He um, recognized an experience that he'd had when he was a child of sitting in the shade on the hot Indian summer and watching people work and remembering a kind of coolness that was in his mind at the time. He decided to sit down and look directly into his own experience. And it was really in the sense of that ease that he was able to investigate and have the courage to look at his experience just as it was. It was a new turn of mind, a kind of historic turn of mind to look at what was happening. But it was based really in kindness and care. The other thing that's interesting about this is that uh, while he was attempting to really understand life uh, through the expression of life or through the experience, this uh, force Mara came, this demon supposedly, or it's called death, um, Mara means death, it's the killer of experience, and said, you know, you don't really deserve to be doing this, you're not good enough, who do you think you are? Um, uh, uh, trying to attack his self-esteem. And thereupon he touched the earth and said, I have the right to be here, I have the right to do this. And the earth shook in witness, He's doing it there. And I really love that gesture. Um, it's um, each of our right to be here as... Um, the Buddha did not allow statues of himself to be made in the beginning because he didn't want people to think that the story was about him. So the story is about ourselves, that no one uh, has the right to be here more than oneself, and no one has the right to uh, loving kindness more than oneself. So to take this as a basis uh, of trust to be with what is. The Buddha's story also, um, as a legend for us, talks a lot about his positive desire and his positive motivation, his passion for the truth, his wanting to come to an understanding of what makes people suffer and what brings the end of suffering so that he could help people. And supposedly he spent many, many lifetimes cultivating the power to be able to do this. It's said that um, he accomplished his own welfare so completely that he no longer had to do anything for himself anymore, so that after his enlightenment, all of his actions were really motivated by the desire to help other people. So in that, there's a very strong uh, sense of desire, uh, of passion, and of motivation. He said, use desire to end desire. So there is something here that we all want, right? What, I don't know how it's expressed in you and each of you, but it may be meaning, it may be release, it may be understanding, it may be curiosity. Whatever that is, that motivation is a treasure. And it's good to recognize and to own it in ourselves. It's one of the four bases of power in practice, which I'm not going to uh, go into in depth, but desire, persistence, intent and discrimination. Um, I'll be touching on those sort of as facets through this talk, but um, I'm not going to expound them. I would like to um, take a little bit of time to um, try to express a little bit about the importance of what we're doing here and the capacity and possibility of what we're facing. Um, 
to have a sense that we have the right to develop happiness is something that is a little bit of an internal work for us. But that we have the capacity or that this practice is beneficial is something that can sometimes feel a little bit elusive or there can be doubt about whether you know, we're doing anything really worthwhile. And in this regard, I would like to talk about um, some of the research that's been done lately and um, the importance of developing the mind. When they study concert pianists, there's a musical area in their brain that has not only um, grown in size, but also changed its structure. And similarly, when they study people who have done 10,000 hours or more of practice, um, the amount of blood that can, they can make flow into the area of their brain that is um, associated with happy feelings or feeling good is 1,200% what a regular person can, can do, um, which is a lot, <laughs> right? <laughs> but they've also shown that, so, you know, that may seem a little bit, you know, out of the realm for us, but actually 10,000 hours is something that we can uh, put together over our lifetime, even um, if we just use our vacations from work, if we practice every day. But they also showed that people who practice half an hour a day for 30 days have very significant increases in their sense of happiness and a reduction in the amount of like blood that flows through the little depression, rumination, uh, grumpy area of the brain. <laughs> And you respond better to your flu shots and everything. So this is, this is good, and it's been proven <laughs> by science. Or there's beginning to be a great deal of research about this um, and that it's actually relevant and that our mental states or this type of endeavor that we're doing here can actually affect the body. It's, it's, actually, it's still in the realm of the material. You know, It doesn't touch what our subjective sense of well-being is. But for those of us who want to feel like you know you can... It's like bending spoons with your mind or something like that. You can change your brain with your mind, but um, it also does have a strong effect on your subjective well-being. It's quite all right within this worldly realm, within the way the world is, to pursue you know, normal and ordinary happiness, especially for lay people to want to have a relationship to... Um, you know, have a reasonable, decent place to live, to have a job, to have security to a certain degree so that we can have a stable life, so that we can feel that we're contributing to society, so that we can feel that we know about giving and receiving love um, in our life. All of these things are okay. If we look deeply enough into all of our material cravings, we'll see actually that what we really want is the subjective sense that comes with them. So say if you start to look at the, your desire to have money or something, is it the money or is it the security or the sense of possibility that money can bring? Um, we want abundance. We want um, safety. We want um, to know that we don't have to worry about where we live or getting evicted or you know medical bills and stuff like that. So in wanting... A sense, you know, financial security, we want um, actually something subjective inwardly. When we look a little bit closely at the nature of life, it's, it's very important what the mind can do. The mind can uh, overcome circumstances both in a negative and a positive way. You can have a terrible time at a fancy hotel um, and you can also find a lot of love and bonding and equanimity in a crisis this way that we receive experience is, is really critical for our well-being. So I want to also reinforce that and invite you also to perform your own investigation on this and see how important is your um, subjective uh, state of mind, the way that you receive experience. We're lucky that human life has sufficient pleasure, that we're not being crushed by misery, or that our particular lives have enough time that we can all be here it's suggested in the Buddhist tradition that we reflect on this every day, that we think about how fortunate we are, um, that we think about our inner possibility, our inner capacity. Human beings are said to be the beings that have the widest rate of range of emotions and the greatest possibility for change of all the kinds of beings in the universe. Um, this may be true of what we, of the kinds of beings that we know. 
Drukshan Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher that I know, says if you can, he said he was taken to see uh, one of those bird exhibits, like the parrot jungle thing. He came afterwards to give a talk and he said, well, if they can train a cockatoo to ride a little bicycle across a wire, then we should really be able to train our minds <laughs> to be present. <laughs> The training in Buddhism is really that we can become more skilled at being happy. Um, that, you know, unfortunately, it's not necessarily a passive thing. Like, we tend to think of, like, well, we're either a happy person or an unhappy person. But the notion that we can train ourselves to be happier is a little bit unfamiliar. Um, hap in English means uh, sort of luckiness or something that sort of happens, happenstance and stuff like that. So we, it's rooted in our language that we think that, you know, you're either, like, you're given this, or it depends on your circumstances or on your fortune, not so much on your inner efforts that you can become more and more deeply happy. The Buddhist monk uh, Matthew Ricard, who's been um, studied a lot in the MRI chamber, um, says, why shouldn't we think of ourselves as being able to train our minds in adulthood toward being happy? Like, after all, we're all born as an unidentified crying object. (laughs) (laughs) we have to learn how to eat we have to learn how to talk then why shouldn't these like higher levels of training also become a reasonable thing for us to aspire to so this is all in support of the desire to change and the sense of possibility to try to acknowledge for ourselves um, what is possible for us now the Buddha said that there are two ways of uh, coming to an understanding one is hearing it and the other one is understanding it inside yourself. Um, of course, the second one is the first one is needed, sort of, to, for there to be a pointing out of a possibility, and then the second is to begin to apply it. These it fits also the three insight scheme that's in Philip's book and in his exposition of the four noble truths in each um, in each sector. So how do we apply this desire for understanding towards uh, knowing ourselves or towards becoming happier? The Buddha said um, that, let's see, here it is. Sometimes he used some very strong languages and metaphors. He said, suppose followers, a person whose lifetime was 100 years, who would live 100 years, and, they were to, and someone were to say to that person, come, good person, in the morning they will strike you with 100 spears, and again at midday, and again in the evening. Now, good person, you who will live 100 years being struck daily with 300 spears, at the end of these 100 years, you will penetrate the four noble truths. <laughs> you will come to full enlightenment, full awakening, and complete wisdom. If it, even if it were necessary to be struck by all these spears, a person of good family, influenced by what is of real value, would be willing to undergo this ordeal. <laughs> So he's saying that um, the kind of happiness that you can achieve is sort of so intense and important. You can hear him here saying, like, I understand something that you guys don't know uh, really exists. It's like when Philip said last night that be willing to leave the room, that after you leave the room that you were born and bred in, you might see the, put the room in context. But I hear him saying that this is something available, that you would be willing to be struck with hundreds of spears uh, for 100 years every day. Now the spears are going to come in the later part of the retreat. (laughs) But for now, you just have to get up really early and eat oatmeal and (laughs) sit in the dark and stuff like that. (laughs) But also to be willing to go through our own difficulties, each one of us, inside our minds, which may actually be the equivalent of or feel like being struck with 100 spears through the day at different times. So... um, to be willing to open to our own discomfort and to see that um, this can be something of value. So in the cultivation of happiness, there is the difficulty that leads to happiness, and then there's the difficulty that leads just to more difficulty. So the willingness here is with this desire that we have for freedom or for understanding or wisdom or love or however it is that it feels to you for meaning, that we're willing to sometimes undergo some difficulties, some ups and downs through the day, physical pain in sitting. And again, there's discrimination that's needed here, that if your pain in your knee starts to feel like your cartilage is being torn from your bones, then you should really not 
stick with that. It's not just pain for the sake of pain. It is sometimes being willing to see that if you can't stop and face the physical discomfort of sitting, that you're going to be a lot worse off by twisting and turning and fidgeting and trying to get away from it. It kind of exacerbates um, the suffering by uh, being unwilling to tolerate it. This is beginning to approach the craving side of the second noble truth that when we can't really um, relate to our experience, when we start to live at a distance from our experience, that is suffering. When we believe in a sense that we're sort of a separate entity standing somewhere else than our experience, that split is a split in our minds that uh, causes suffering, that is a suffering position. So that again and again, by coming to our experience, turning toward it and facing it, we unify the mind, we unify the mind and the body. We come together with our existence and our suffering is slightly reduced. We may not notice it dramatically um, in every single moment, but it's generally the trend that we're unifying. In Zen, they really hammer the point that most of our suffering comes from wanting things to be some other way than the way they are. It's a very, very simple statement. We want something else all the time. Um, Sometimes we're not even conscious of wanting something else. Um, Our minds don't really fit easily with what's going on. It's an unconscious habit. Especially when things are uncomfortable physically or mentally, we're mostly taught uh, not to show or acknowledge um, sadness, pain, feelings of grief or inferiority. Um, So it's a very rare teaching that allows us to hold those things and acknowledge them and not believe that they define us. Because in the teaching um, of the ordinary world of not acknowledging um, these kind of difficult feelings, there's a sense that, you know, they're very real or they're very defining or you would be captured by them if you admitted that they were there. So this very rare teaching that um, turning toward discomfort can bring joy, can bring radical openness and unconditional strength and stability to our mind and body is something that I personally treasure very much. It's a little bit like being an athlete where um, the discomfort of exercise um, is something that you get used to and actually begin to enjoy. It sort of feels good after a while to exert yourself, and it certainly uh, feels good in its results um, on your body and also on your mind, I would say, on the whole psychophysical continuum. So not running away from our pain... um, There's a type of persistence, one of those meditative powers, not giving up on ourselves, letting what's difficult be difficult. Um, Like Adrian's example the other day of uh, sitting with a patient whose illness couldn't be cured and letting it be painful and letting it be true and letting the sort of helplessness be there and holding, um, holding that experience with yourself or with someone else allows something else to be born in the experience, something of a different order, something of a higher level, real contact, real sharing, you might call it love, not trying to fix it or deny it. So when um, Adrian and Philip have been talking a lot about just saying, it is like this right now, it's like this right now, this is a really a kind of a one-size-fits-all phrase. It can be used in times of joy. It can be used in times of sorrow. And it's a way of uh, inviting our mind to a state of awareness and openness and acceptance that actually in itself is one of the goals of the practice. So I invite you all really to acknowledge when um, you find those moments uh, that you're able to open and acknowledge and let things be like this right now to savor the the contentment that comes with that, the contentment of simply being with your cup of tea or of simply walking down the hall or simply being sad when you're sad or happy when you're happy here in the retreat. Also elsewhere, um, it's like this right now. Our life um, is the way our life is. It doesn't mean, again, that it's not legitimate at times to uh, see that something needs to be changed on the outer level. We're not saying that at all. 
Um, so it's not that you have to sit and endure bad conditions. When I came back from Burma, I, had, um, I was there in 1988, and they were killing a lot of people outside the monastery, and I felt terrible about it. I, there was nothing I could do to help people. I, the best thing I could do, I felt, was to subtract myself from that place and not be there and kind of not make anyone have to take care of me or have to rescue me or my family worry or anything like that. So I just left. That was the only thing I thought was possible. Um, and for some months afterwards, I lived in this kind of dumpy place in Jamaica Plain in Boston, a dark apartment. It didn't even have a heating system. And I was holding some kind of solidarity with the suffering of the people in Burma. And then at some point I thought, well, you know what? For me to also suffer along with them is not going to help them. Like if, it, if they were me, they would probably like to have a heated apartment, <laughs> right? It wasn't, it wasn't like transferring that sort of auto misery. And the minute I saw the kind of craziness of this belief, it immediately kind of disappeared. It was like understanding the futility of um, what was going on. This, um, it's a form of how craving causes misery, that when you see that you're attached to an artificial image and you're kind of behaving according to something that isn't in line with reality, that isn't in harmony with the nature of life, if you see it clearly enough, you actually automatically let it go, I think. Um, it happens kind of by itself. So someone today in the interview asked about how is it that the understanding of craving, uh, craving is understood by abandoning. So we're lucky when there can be a really pristine recognition so that the automatic intelligence of our minds come forth and just there is an automatic letting go, such as when I saw that in my apartment. Um, the teacher, Matthew Flickstein, recommends contemplating your life and um, trying to identify craving, the ubiquity of craving, saying, is there anything that you actually feel really happy and contented with and wouldn't want to change at all? Um, your body, your hair, your relationship, your job, is there anywhere that you're actually totally at rest or not? Um, even if you have stuff that you really like when it starts to get nicked and dinged, you know, like the new car syndrome, like especially living in Boston, within about a month there's usually someone has parked badly and ripped off your bumper or something. Um, so things that you like, do they actually stay the same? Do they actually provide that kind of happiness? And what is your response to that, to what your life is. Um, do you have, as I have when I perform that exercise, I feel like there's always something in me that's this little animal kind of scratching at, you know, like, well, you know, if I could just get like this little blob of fat off my hips, or, you know, if I could just like stop eating things, or if I could just like fix my husband so that he's not so stubborn, or if our apartment were cleaner, or if the dog didn't shed, or, you know, that stuff. If it, wishing that the dog wouldn't smell and I you know, wouldn't have to take it to the place uh, where he gets washed all the time or wash him myself, which is an ordeal. You know, all that stuff. And is it possible in the moment of recognizing this kind of ubiquity of craving to sort of say, oh, you know what, I'm really causing myself disturbance by this. Can you relax that muscle that is kind of constantly doing that? Are you willing then to let your life kind of be what your life is. Is there a piece of craving that can simply be shed um, at the time? Seeing the suffering and craving and seeing the extraness of it. As Philip was saying last night, um, when grasping and craving and the suffering um, is generated, it's almost always that we're relating to an idea or an image of what should be. I was talking with my sister, um, preparing to come to this retreat, and she said, oh, yeah, you know, that's exactly true. Like when my daughter, her four-year-old, comes home from school and is hungry, very often this daughter, who's a very willful person, has formed an idea of what she wants to eat. So when she comes home, it's like it has to be spaghetti. And my sister might have made cheesy rice instead. <laughs> so there's a tantrum that occurs, you know, I really don't want this. And my sister's approach is, of course, to not to punish the child, uh, not to necessarily let herself be manipulated, you know, all the time into, you know, saying, okay, throwing away the things she made, 
but to see the hunger and to try to persuade her to eat one spoonful of that cheesy rice. So we can do that with ourselves also, you know, to see that um, what we have here in front of us uh, is like that rice. Are we willing to taste what we have as our life rather than being tortured by the image of what our life should be, persuading ourselves to be with what's here? It was uh, last, uh, the Valentine's night, the 14th, um, was the first night of the retreat, and I found out belatedly that someone was coming over to my house and making this incredibly gourmet feast for my husband. And if I had been there, I would have been able to have, um, you know, shrimp on top of a sort of mix of all these delicious things, and I can't even remember that. It was a mashed turnips with scallops, and, you know, this guy is really like a, you know, he's really into his cooking. I told David, no, um, I'm going to be here eating squash soup and listening to a talk on suffering. (laughs) 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 But I was happy, I actually was happy to be with uh, what's meaningful to me, with the taste of Dharma and hearing the Dharma again, things that train me to um, really enjoy my life as it is has a much deeper meaning than any one feast. And I also know that I can have that feast another time. Um, and that probably they spent the day recovering from everything that they ate. <laughs> so I did sort of, my mind went into a little thing of like, can they send me a FedEx next day air <laughs> refrigerated bit? So living in images of how things should be and torturing ourselves with perfectionism is something that is definitely to be discarded when we recognize, when we can recognize that we're being driven in that way. Um, Philip also has a great way of talking about the second noble truth that's really accessible in our culture to say that it's great to live from values, that living from uh, what's valuable and meaningful is in itself a protection rather than living from the outcome. So say in this um, practice, we intend and we value being present. But if we think we have to be present perfectly every minute, then we're going to suffer. We bring that perfectionism or an image of how our experience should be into the practice, and it doesn't work. Like we think we should be peaceful. We think we should become enlightened. We think we should be free. We think we should be mindful. We think we should stay with the breath, all that stuff. When we reach out and are kind of landing on uh, outcomes and images, it's painful. But if we just remember that it's of our value and our intention to be present, then when we find ourselves distracted, we'll come back to being present either with the fact of distraction or with the breathing, Um, really being able to understand that the value is where the richness lies. And that the outcome occurs on its own, that um, the efforts that we make in this practice are very, very simple and very targeted, and that we're positioning ourselves in the place of being at the cause, at the moment of cause, and that the effort um, is to come and be present, to be present with this openness, lack of judgment, um, and that it's from that that the effects unfold, but the effects unfold naturally. That's part of what the Buddha discovered, that if you do this very sort of, you know, not easy but doable thing, that the level of happiness and understanding will rise on its own as a result of this attention. So a lot of times also in practice we get, when we get into making um, wrong efforts, we think that we have to produce tranquility. We think that we have to sort of create um, calmness where actually that's, that doesn't really work. Calmness is achieved in being aware of disturbance with an open mind. That's where you can drop into being calm. So um, again, the practice of saying this is how it is. We also begin to see that um, there, what it's said that uh, craving uh, contains an, um, some amount of ignorance and delusion. It's when you see life with ignorance and delusion and you think that the satisfaction is in the spaghetti, you know, that you're going to be happy if there's spaghetti. I've had the experience, it was just last week, of buying a chocolate chip cookie, which is one of my things that I love. And I have a certain kind that I like. I like them when they're crispy and they have a lot of butter and they're not cakey and stuff. So I saw one 
and I bought it. And I was eating it, and I thought, this isn't the cookie I wanted. <laughs> you know, I wanted a different one. And I was passing by this other bakery, and I thought, well, maybe I'll go in there and I'll get one of theirs. You know, <laughs> in the middle of eating the first one. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to laugh sometimes. Um, <laughs> there's a story, another story about a child where um, the parents are trying to train the child to go to bed. Um, I'm not a mother, but I have relationships with a lot of children and young people, so I know that this thing of like not wanting to go to sleep by oneself and be in one's own room is hard um, at a certain age. So the mom and dad have decided that they're going to just let the kid deal with itself. Um, and it's an, it starts saying, Mommy, Daddy, come. Mommy, Daddy, come. You know, these heart-rending cries, right? And then suddenly it was like, Somebody come! Somebody come! <laughs> <laughs> and then finally it ends up at, Anybody! Anybody come! So at that point, the father looks at the mother and says, Okay, I'm sorry. I just can't deal with this. I'm going to go in. So he goes in, and the little kid looks up and says, I want it. Mommy! <laughs> <laughs> so with this we can start to kind of laugh at ourselves and to see some humor in ourselves and to understand that it's actually the attachment and the craving that burns us, not necessarily what's in the situation. So to analyze this intellectually is one thing, but also to begin to um, recognize when you've got that sticky or driven quality in the mind. And the practice being kind of not to knock it away, to treat it as if you were your own mother at that time, and to hold yourself, to tune in and really see that this is what the mind is doing, trusting in that sort of axiomatic power of awareness and openness to begin to diffuse uh, the driven quality. It's as if you replace some of the drive and of the, you know, screwed up desire with mindfulness and it makes the whole situation a lot more workable and less sticky. So this would be to recognize sort of craving on a gross level and to start to um, learn to accept it, to open to it. There's this little uh, contemplation that I would like to lead you through that also might help to begin to discriminate between um, pleasantness and unpleasantness and craving and aversion. So this is something that I learned from Andy Olensky from a talk that he gave on the staff retreat uh, some years ago. So he invites us to say, like, so who are we or what are we? What is our experience? And to say that we can all uh, recognize that there are the senses. There's the body, and there's the sensations of the body. There's some consciousness that knows those things. There's sounds, and there's hearing, and there's some consciousness that knows those things, right? Um, so you can feel those things. There you, there's sights, there's seeing, and there's an awareness that knows those things. So within this field of senses and mind, thinking, sort of there's the mind, there's mental experiences, and there's something knowing mental experiences. Within all of this, there's something in the tone of those experiences um, of the senses and the mind that can be a feeling of pleasure, of something nice, a feeling of something not so nice or difficult and then a feeling of something that's maybe just feeling, uh, not necessarily one way or the other, but a sense of some kind of feeling or texture, like almost an emotional texture, but not quite. You with me so far? So from pleasure, there's a sense of some kind of response. So when something is pleasant, um, there's a wishing, there's an inclination to really liking it. Um, with things that are difficult, there's a movement inside of not wanting it or wanting to get away from it or wanting to fix it. And it's in that movement that we begin to create the self or idea of someone who's standing apart from experience that would like to manipulate the experience, right? So imagining that this sense of pushing or pulling that you can um, kind of perceive in yourself 
is like a muscle um, that you can relax somewhat. I'd like to invite you to relax um, maybe your shoulders and your neck right now. Like, can you bring some sense of softening or invitation to the top of your back, your shoulders and your neck? feeling whether um, there's pleasantness in that or whether you kind of felt unable to or were blocked by it. So do you feel the pleasure or the slight frustration, like maybe pleasure and then frustration? And if with the pleasure or frustration you can also feel some kind of attachment or kind of aversion to that, is it possible to relax the muscle in the mind that wants to manipulate the experience to make it more pleasant or less difficult. Maybe there's a muscle in your mind that is um, wishing the talk would end or loving the talk also. So see if there's uh, something in there, any kind of way that you can find to um, relax the mind and release the grip of the mind on pleasant and unpleasant. And with that relaxation, is it easier to enter into whatever the actual experience is that you're having? So to come back and to taste um, whatever's happening in your shoulders and neck at this moment, or whatever's happening in your intellectual mind, um, whether you're accepting the um, Dharma talk or not accepting it, or however it is, if there's something going on in your experience that is pushing and pulling. So I've touched a little bit on this idea of how the self is born that stands apart from experience, the ego, the belief in a self that comes um, basically uh, as a sense of refuge or control from experiences that are pleasant or difficult. There was someone in an interview today who spoke of a really pristine um, memory that she had of um, remembering an experience as a child of saying that, you know, there's something wrong with me and that's why I feel this way. Um, and we all do that. There's a part of the mind that grasps onto and creates an identity out of our experience. So from the pushing and pulling of craving, there's also the further step of solidifying an identity um, and grasping onto some inherent being that um, doesn't uh, really connect fully with experience. Taking birth, as Philip said, I was teaching with a young uh, friend of ours in uh, California, and there was, a, there was a woman in the question and answer session who was talking a lot about, she was having a huge conflict about to be evicted from her apartment building and feeling that there was um, a lot of injustice in the situation. And uh, this young person who was teaching said, well, don't let yourself be reborn as the victim here. Like you do, you have choices, don't take birth as someone who's uh, being oppressed because it's, it's, um, it's not true. You can cause more suffering to yourself by seeing the situation in that way. Like you, you see it as fixed, um, then you have no solution and you sink to the bottom. So I won't um, go a lot into that sense of when we start to create a self out of our experience, either positive or negative, and how difficult that makes our life. But it's also something to watch um, in our practice when we start to feel that we are um, you know, a failure or a great success. Uh, being, getting all your uh, ducks in a row in the practice and thinking that all of a sudden you know, you're just about to be enlightened <laughs> is probably um, not correct. It'll, I think the experience will tend to go downhill from those peaks usually. 
So on a sort of subtler level, as we begin to be with the experience, say, of anger or of um, shame or of joy or of dislike, the invitation to be with the experience in the body um, is a bit of a way of sidestepping the sense of solidifying into self and other. So if we're thinking about something that made us angry or happy in the day, the intelligent or practice way of dealing with this is to perhaps let go a little bit of the sense of who or what was the instigator of, of the situation and just have the experience in yourself. It's as if um, someone make, made me angry, someone made me irritated, someone made me feel insecure. Um, or someone made me feel very happy and supported. What is that like in the body? So letting go of the feeling of who it was. It's as if the um, sense of who it was or what the situation was is like the wood that creates a fire. And instead of looking at the wood, you look at the fire. You look at the experience of the anger or the joy or the pleasantness, finding it in the body. And here we see the gateway to a deeper investigation, the investigation that can begin to help us let go of craving on a profound or molecular kind of irreversible level of seeing things as they actually are. So when we find anger um, in the body um, as maybe a burning sensation or a, a tightness or a um, you know, tension in the muscles, looking directly into the experience and seeing the flickering of it, the changing way that it has, um, the impermanence. And in fact, um, if you look at it even more closely, you'll see that um, it cannot really be called solid, uh, this anger, these experiences of emotions in the body. They're constantly flickering um, and changing. In the end, they'll go away on their own, whether you um, sustain them or not. You'll be distracted by something, or the dinner bell. This is from a Mahayana script, scripture whose source I've lost. When looking at the moon in water, you may say, but it's there, I see it. Reach and try to touch it, and it's not there. It's the same with thoughts in the mind. You may ask, how does this thinking come about? It's by interdependent origination. For the reflection of the moon and water, there has to be water and a moon. For there to be anger in the mind, there has to be a mind and a world. So all of the situations that we come up with um, exist in our experience with the basis of our consciousness, the water in which they ha they're reflected. That has to be there. So if you don't look at your experience clearly moment to moment, you won't actually see the nature of your mind. But if you do look closely, you'll see that things are a lot more transparent than you think. It's like the transparency of the flames in a fire. And when that transparency comes, there's a sense of much more profound freedom of the space inside any experience. It's as if um, someone puts a dot on a blackboard, and mostly what we see is a dot rather than the blackboard. Um, it's the same with experience. There's some space in our mind that is holding it already naturally. Um, that is the openness that we're trying to cultivate or that we're trying to recognize and connect with here in the practice. So if, as we begin to see like this, we'll notice that there's some clarity in our mind that um, has never really been touched by the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of our experience that um, can't be improved and can't be ruined by whatever kind of experience lands on it. It's the same knowledge that hears. It's the same knowledge that feels sensations. Uh, it's the same knowledge that actually knows your thoughts that uh, on which your thoughts are being written. So in this state of really open awareness, you can feel both that something is happening, that there's an intimacy with your experience, and also a type of freshness or an untouched quality, the fullness of the present moment. Um, so I hope that um, as the retreat 
goes on, that you will more and more learn to trust this kind of openness of the mind, this natural internal capacity of knowing, to rest in that openness and to sense the very subtle joy and intimacy that comes when you're willing to just be with yourself as we're being from moment to moment. And that's the end of the talk. <laughs> I was looking for a good poem to sum it all up, and I couldn't quite find one. There was one. There are a lot of Tibetan poems that talk about this, um, this beautiful openness of mind. But they were over at my, at the cottage, and I didn't want to drive back and bring them. So the poem I leave you with is uh, your mind, your openness, your knowing, your mindfulness. So please trust the mind that knows what things are like for you. Just what's happening. It's enough. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.